Welcome back to Tomahawk Talk on WFFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. It's time for the time-honored tradition here at Tomahawk Talk, the seminal segment. We have Carolina Perez in the booth. What do you got for us, Carolina? Hey, VNN listeners. Here to continue in on this weekend's Seminole Summit, the Seminole Soccer Ladies are headed to the semifinals. Seminole team achieved this after having knocked off number 5 Duke this past Sunday at the ACC quarterfinals in what ended as a 1-0 game. With this win, not only will Florida State remain undefeated against Duke, it is also just the second time FSU has won at Cuscannon Stadium, joining the 2-1 victory back in 2013. Through a game, though the game had few windows for scoring, it was a Duke foul to Kristen McFarland in the 23rd minute, which set up the goal that would decide the game. Though the initial attempt was blocked, the ball came out to Dana Castellanos, who delivered it over to Christina Lynch, who headed it back over to the goal, leaving McFarland to seal the deal. At 1-0, they will now advance on to take on number 11 Virginia, November 2nd. Next up, tennis star Aziz Tugaz claims his second pro title. The senior had a big weekend this past week as he came away with his second career singles and eighth overall pro title. His journey to this victory was not not one without struggle, though. Back in August, he suffered a wrist injury while competing at the Tunisia F29 Features back in his hometown of La Marsa, Tunisia. After being out eight weeks and, do and going through rehab, he made it back on the court and was determined as ever, as it shows. Congrats, Aziz. And finally, Florida State Frida Canoles of Seminole Golf won the individual championship and helped FSU play second at the Jim West Challenge. With this victory under wraps, Knoltz has become just the fourth freshman in school history to win an individual championship. Knoltz tied the school records for lowest single round score, 65 in the second round, and lowest three-round tournament score versus par, and came within one stroke of tying the school record for individual tournament score during the event. Not only was this an impressive feat for the team, but for Knoltz as well, who herself had said that she had written off as one of her goals for this year to win an individual championship. Knoltz carded the scores of 65 and 66, earned her first collegiate win and her fourth consecutive top 10 individual finish. With a 600 par score of 66 in the third round, the freshman defeated Renee Grimstad of Miami by five strokes. She joined an and also enjoyed an exclusive club of Seminole freshmen who have earned individual championships. If you'd like to tune in on more action, Florida State opens its spring season at the Northrop Grumman Challenge at the Lynx at Torino Golf Course in Palos Verdes Estates, California, February 3rd, 2019. That's it for now. Thanks for tuning in to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State, and now back to the studio with Chris and Nick from Tomahawk Talk. Thank you so very much, Carolina. Nicely done, as always. And, and of course, women's soccer has been having a fantastic season, as uh, Carolina just outlined for us a little bit. As they usually do, they're coming off beating Duke 1-0 on Sunday, who they have never lost to in the ACC tournament, by the way. The, uh, the girls bouncing back after a loss to Miami on Thursday. They will be facing Virginia, as Carolina said, this upcoming Sunday in the semifinals. A team that they did beat two weekends ago in Virginia 2-0, which was the first time that they had done that, too. So that will be for... That will for sure be an interesting matchup. I know that we haven't devoted too much time to women's soccer this season because football has really consumed Florida State athletics over the past few months. But rest assured, we have been watching and following along. And if you haven't been following this team, you have seriously been missing out heavily. Daniel Cust Castanellos, I know I just butchered that name. She is one hell of an athlete. And Dana Castellanos. There you go. Yeah. See, that's why I have Chris as my co-host. I'm the, uh, the token the Latino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and the success of that team is uh, it's really inspiring and, and great to see um, especially with how negative in general Florida State sports has been over the past few weeks so uh, thank you Carolina uh, so 
despite having facing their toughest competition yet this season, the road really doesn't get any easier for the Seminoles, uh, Seminoles football speaking. Uh, they end the season with nearly every single game being against top 25 teams, uh, except for next week versus NC State, a team that, of course, was in the top 25 this past week, but then lost to Syracuse, and they have dropped out of the top 25, which Syracuse is, in my mind, the best team in the ACC right now that's not mean Clemson. I mean, they are absolutely crushing it right now, and uh, I, I think they are ranked in this issue of the polls. I think they're 22nd. I think they took over NC State's position, but I am not quite sure. But uh, besides the point, NC State comes into this game at home suffering two losses, one to Clemson, one to Syracuse. They've been one of the teams this year that hasn't looked overly strong and could be beaten by Florida State. Sebastian, obviously Florida State has had its trouble against NC State the past few years. What do the Seminoles have to do to beat the Wolfpack this year? Olivia, do you have any, any idea? Um, well, Florida State has been ping-ponging back and forth this whole entire season. Uh, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win. Uh, so if a According to plan, they should win this game. <laughs> Hopefully they learn something uh, from this Clemson game and they can take what Taggart said to heart, um, take responsibility for their poor playing. Um, it's lame and it's cliche, but some positivity and how about our offense tightens up a little bit. I think <laughs> that they could they could win this one. I, I love that phrase that you use, ping-ponging back and forth. Yeah, play. I like that <laughs> Honestly. It's, it's accurate. It's, <laughs> accurate, it's accurate, too. Yeah. Uh, a couple things to note on this game since the Seminoles uh, joined the ACC. They have played NC State every single year. And this upcoming game is the first time that FSU has not been favored to win in this game <laughs> in, the, in the entire history of the series between these two. According since to ESPN... NC State has a 75.5% chance of winning. So you're saying there's a chance. Exactly. Every year. What a chance. Apparently in the first quarter of last week's game, I know, like, we don't want to talk about it anymore, and it, talking about that game just makes you want to kind of open up and read a book. But, um... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we apparently had a 15%, like, our best shot at winning that game, according to ESPN, was we had a 14% chance of doing it right near the end of the first quarter. And then it didn't drop past 99% once we hit the second quarter. <laughs> so, uh... Oh, man. Yeah. It's fine. Well, fine. um... So, Nyquan Murray and Zakondra White, as we already said, are suspended for the first half of the game. Um, of course, we talked about the new starters that may be coming in as part of those changes that we've been talking about uh, in the first half of the show. Um, for those that quit during the Clemson game, DeAndre Francois and Dontavious Jackson have shown up on the injury report as day-to-day. Chris, things don't seem to be well-favored at all right now for Florida State with all the changes that are hinted to be happening this weekend. Do you think that this game is going to be more challenging because of those changes, or will these changes, you think, find a catalyst somewhere and work out for the better. I think we've said it all year long, but I, uh, this game is going to test the will, the willpower of this team, whether or not they can, you know, make it through all the all the arduous times um, that they that has faced them. So if they can if they can make it past this NC State team, I think they can get that one last win uh, to secure a bowl game. Uh, that's it's a big if because as as we mentioned, it's it's a really really tough schedule. I I, I honestly uh, wouldn't be surprised if Florida State didn't win another game this season. I would I, I, I really would not be surprised. And uh, I, and I'm taking a look at, at NC State's uh, statistics. Uh, their defense, NC State's defense, isn't too far off from from Florida State's. Florida State has allowed 390 points, uh, give or take, and NC State has only allowed 391. So they're, they're, are, it, it, the defenses are comparable. It's going to be a matter of whether or not the offenses uh, can, can really take off. I could see this being a shootout. 
But the, I, I, although those stats that they are really really close, I think the big matchup is going to be Florida State's defensive line versus NC State's, NC State's offensive line. NC State's offensive line at this point of the season has only allowed four sacks. Really? Just four. In I don't total. even. I, I don't in total. I think I don't want to even look up the amount of sacks that Florida State's offensive line has allowed because it's it's, it's a lot. And uh, it's probably too big of a number <laughs> to 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 to. Um, There's one of the stats that we that we just intentionally yeah about. intentionally about you know you know we do miss some things sometimes but this one we're making sure we avoid um, as we've alluded to it five um, times in the past. <laughs> <laughs> an, an, another thing is who's going to be behind center in this upcoming game? Uh, DeAndre Francois is on the injury report. He, they I think the the wordage used was that he was beaten up uh, after. Uh, the Clemson game, which he certainly was beaten up. Um, but there's been a lot of talk about James Blackman in recent weeks about when and if he may start getting some time on the field. And, of course, Florida State is being really reserved to Blackman, probably going to redshirt him this year. I think he has two games left before he loses that eligibility. If Francois has a bad game against NC State, do you think we see Blackman or Taggart keep him off the field? Anybody? I, I, I would say that, that, they give him, that they give him another shot. At this point, you're running into... The well, then again, you, you still have Boston College, Florida, and Notre Dame ahead of you. If anything, probably I, I would probably save him for a Notre Dame or a Florida even. Because like, you, you want to beat Florida. If there's one game you're going to win at the end of the season, you want to beat a rival. Um, so if, if, Black, if uh, Francois goes down or isn't doing well against against the Gators, I, I w that's when I would see him for sure coming in. Olivia, is this a must-win game for Florida State? Absolutely. I think from here on out, every game should be a must-win game, but I'm sitting in a room of realists on the verge of pessimism. <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't know if we can secure all of these wins, but at least, at least one. Um, somehow last year we managed to squeak out a bowl game um, so if we want another squeaked out bowl <laughs> game, then this is <laughs> then this yeah, is a must is a win. <laughs> Absolutely, right. it's a must win. I have to say that I I disagree with with putting in like the idea of we'll probably see him in a really big game, like like a Florida or the Notre Dame game. Uh, simply, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense for me. Um, you think so? You think we'll see him in like a Boston College or in? If we if we do, we will, and that's just um, you know when. If this program is sees uh, Blackman as the way forward as a redshirt, which is probably the case, um, you want to put him in like that is just basically throwing him into the grinder. The, those are hard games. How did and you last know, year be thrown into the grinder? Yeah, uh, right? I know, but we we also saw how like he would get laid out by defenses who weren't hesitant to to lay him out. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to preserve him, you you don't put him against. Um, Florida's defense or Notre Dame's defense, um, you, I, I would turn to, to Francois for that because we, we know at least he has some durability. If he needs to rest this weekend, then rest him this weekend. But otherwise, he's still, he's still my guy for this weekend. Obviously, we can't talk about this game as much as we would like to. Obviously, there's so much re revolving around the Clemson game and, and what happened this past weekend, but uh, we got to move to predictions for this game. Spread is currently at 7 uh, towards NC State. Uh, game predictions and if they beat the spread, Chris. Uh, I'm gonna say Florida State does beat the spread, uh, or, or covers the spread. Do they win it? That's that's the magic question. That's isn't the it? magic question. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna have the final score being 28-25, and I'll leave the victor 
up to Saturday. <laughs> okay, Olivia? I'm going to rock with Florida State, unfortunately, not winning this game. But I think it's going to be close. I think that they're going to give them a run for their money. I think it's going to be close. Do you have a score at all? If you could mm. just throw something out in the ballpark. Let's do... Let's do 30 to 28. 30 to 28, okay. Sebastian. So what happens when a movable force meets a stoppable object? Wait, no, I got that wrong. Uh, anyways, um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I do see a low-scoring game, though, because uh, that's what we've seen from Florida State. Um, that's what we've seen from NC State. So um, let's call it 14 to 17 14 to, to 17. NC State. I like that. I, I, I take a look at this game, and I, are, I already told you all that NC State's offensive line has only allowed four sacks this year. The bread and butter of what Florida State's defense is, the, the, def the thing that makes this defense really good right now is its defensive line and how well it's played. Marvin Wilson, Brian Burns, Josh Kando, and uh, a bunch of others. How, how reasonably are they going to be able to get to Ryan Finley? How, how, how often are they going to be able to apply pressure? Because when they aren't there, the secondary needs some dire help. And I, I would imagine that some of the players that quit during the Clemson game were defensive backs. Absolutely. I, I think that Levante, well, Levante had uh, his helmet on in the sideline for a couple of drives, so we weren't quite sure whether he was just being held out for, uh, for other reasons. But uh, cornerbacks and safeties are not the bread and butter of the Florida State defense. I don't think Florida State's going to win this game. I think NC State is going to probably be right around the spread. I'm going to say that they're going to win 28-21. Uh, so, uh, with that being said, just college football in general, uh, it's about that time in the season where college football playoff kind of starts to mean something. You know, the rankings start coming out, and you start plugging in the holes, and you take a look at the schedule, and you say, okay, so who's going to be who, where, when, and, and what's going to happen? But I want to talk about the playoff itself here because over the week I saw an article that talked about Washington State head coach Mike Leach's comments on a podcast about the current state of the college football playoff. And he said, I think they need to expand the playoff system. I think the minimum should be 16 teams, but they could easily go with more than that. In other words, I want to see more football. Everybody from rec league softball on down can figure out how to put together a tournament, and yet Division One football can't. Some spicy words there from Mr. Leach, and at first I thought, well, this surely has nothing to do with the fact that Washington State is currently ranked 10 in the AP poll, which is the highest they've been ranked since 2003. They were ranked 15 last week, which I think adds to the, the number 16 as to why that's relevant, but more and more I thought about it. I kept saying, well, it's been four years since the playoff era began. Maybe it's time to look at changes. So just going around here in sort of like a roundtable discussion, I'm, I'm curious to know what all of your thoughts are. And, of course, if you have uh, thoughts for yourself at home, everybody has a different opinion on this, you can call into the show at uh, 850, uh, let's see, 644-1837. That number was very, very tiny up at the top of the studio. <laughs> anyway, so, so why don't we just expand the playoffs to 64 teams in <laughs> one month? <laughs> let's have them all. We'll call it January Jamboree. <laughs> and everybody can bet on it. What a concept, right? No. no We're going to do it. Let's just make it year-round. North, <laughs> North Carolina at 1-6 and six is <laughs> slated to be the last entrant into the college football oh playoff. No, I, I I, believe there should be an expansion of the, of the playoff, of uh, the college football playoffs. I think 16 is a little too much. I would go with 8. 8 max. 8 teams max. I think it, it broadens the... 
The so Dev- a team would play three bowls in order to win the Natty. Well, I don't know necessarily that you would make it a bowl game. I think you would ha- set, right. have to set it aside. It's almost like an extra ACC championship or SEC championship, so to speak. There's that extra game that you play. And that's the kind of the, the pickle that I was thinking about when I was th- thinking about this. It's like, well, if you, ha- if you have less teams to play less games to make everything kind of more organized and flow right. better, are you going to have it be like a wild card in baseball? Where it's mm. it's you have the top four teams, those teams uh, get I, a I bye week of some kind. But then I, I I agree with where Sebastian was going, where you're almost playing too many games. It, either way, I, I understand it's at four, it's fewer games for these players to play. Um, but at the same time, I I don't I don't like the whole AP poll ranking system anyway. It's so subjective, it is so subjective, and I feel like if you expand it to eight, it it includes those teams that maybe were just nixed that could then make their way back to, for a championship. So I can hear I can hear our friend Luke Fay foaming at the mouth thinking about our uh, the national championship and all. But um, honestly, there, there's the thing that I, br- I just brought up, which is how many games would you basically have to win in order to win a natty? Uh, second of all, there there are teams and Chris kind of touched on this uh, where there there are teams where if you're going to do a one in sixteen thing where you're going to seed them. Uh, there's no contest. Like in Alabama, what, what's what's the 16 seed right now? The 16 seed. The yeah. 16 seed. I there, have it right it's here. Utah. It's Utah. 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 Do you do you really think Utah could could right. bring the fight to Tuscaloosa and really give Bama a run for their money? Well, I don't think anybody's giving Bama a run <laughs> for their money this year. But I think in terms of what the future might hold. No. I, yeah. I, I even, agree. even still, I think 16 is a bit. I, I agree. I agree with but, Chris. There could like definitely a, be a happy median. I th- I think that's the I think that's the ticket. Where yeah. if you're gonna do like a, a bracket system, then you have to kind of I honestly think there like the bracket has to be smaller, and there are teams that are kind of locked into to a spot to certain spots on that bracket. Or it's, if you're if you're a team that shows the dominance that we've seen from Saban's uh, Alabama over these past I don't know how long now, um, then then you should be you should have to play less games to prove that you are the best team in the country because you've already done that for 12 games in a row. Right. Um, I mean, the top four teams are obviously good, and then who's to say that yeah. the following top four, the top eight, those are good teams too. Yeah. But I think just stretching it out even further to 16. I think at around like the 11th seed is where things go from foggy to just uh, it's really anybody's guess at that point. Right. And that's where things get really messy. Yeah. So so we're all in agreement. I, I, I mean, I, I thought 16 was too much anyway. And Mike Leach, this isn't the first time that he's spoken out about this. I think he spent Which some coach is that? This is the head coach of Washington State. Um, but with that being said, that we're all kind of on the same line of thinking. It's if there is going to be an extension of games, how many games is it going to be, and how are you going to handle the one and the two seed? How are you going to handle the teams that definitely deserve to be in this playoff, mm-hmm. and how are you going to handle the teams that are coming in on the on the butt of it? Because if you want to if you want to think about it, let's say you know that the Pac-12 champion is going to make it into the the top four, and the Big Ten championship winner is going to make it into the playoff, ACC, SEC, whatever. Sometimes you have runners up following, you know, coming back in to those spots so would you make it to the point where okay so if you win the acc championship for example does that give you that does that give you a bye week mm-hmm. if you add more teams let's say six okay no 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 so because it, it's, it, it's kind of it's kind of just like a give or take you, there's no easy way to pull from any other sport that mm-hmm. does this well without right. having to sacrifice something up and ruining the organization right there's there's 
Like, there's all of this, right? And then we're, we're only thinking of the teams that are good enough to actually worry about this. We're not thinking about the teams who are, um, well, not good enough to worry about this, where um, that's a 12-season schedule, or a 12-game schedule. And, and um, so there are some teams that are going to play three, four extra games. We, in this really shoddy kind of prototype system that we're kind of cooking up here, there's, um, there are teams that are going to play potentially 16 games. Um, what are the, like, after, they're, they're, like, are we going to cut into the regular season? Like, the way we talk about a potential base, um, MLB restructuring, where it's like, how do you keep all, all of the postseason in October? Because that's what we want right. in baseball. Um, if you want, like, a better playoff system there, because that playoff system, it's imperfect. We, we have a lot of criticism for it, um, <laughs> in general, just as kind of, uh, as fans of the sport. But, um... Like, how are you? Are you going to cut into the regular season of those? Like, I'm sorry to say this, but inferior teams, um, their problem. The the it's players probably won't be happy problem. about that. The yeah. schools won't be happy. Well, about and that. then because for the teams that are making the college football players, you have the matter of okay, so what's the number of wins that you have to make to make a bowl game if you're going to cut into the season? It's just a whole big mess. Uh, but with with the comments from the podcast, 16, I think we're all agreeing it's too much, and maybe maybe there's some restructuring in the future, but. Uh, it's definitely going to be a, a probably p people's toes are going to get stepped on one way or the other. Right. With about five minutes left in the show, I said we were going to get here eventually, and it is about that time. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. This okay. is going to be painful for you. It's it's really not. I'm I'm really okay. I promise. Are you <laughs> sure? <laughs> I, I, he says with I tears in his okay. eyes. <laughs> he, he says with a single tear. Yeah. Right. Um, it's World Series time. Let's get to it. So I mean, my overall feeling. With it, with this, with this series, was that Boston was going to be unstoppable, anyways. Right. But I was curious to see how the Dodgers would do, considering that they just got out of a series with the Milwaukee Brewers, who looked unbeatable at a, at a certain time in the postseason. Mm -hmm. And then you get into this series where Boston always seemed to be one step ahead of the Dodgers. And I know I've talked to you quite a bit about this, Chris. Um, when we were talking while watching the games, I felt like uh, Roberts was pulling his pitchers way too quickly in certain situations that might have benefited the Dodgers. And I think that in, in, in the essence of what the series was, he lost the managing battle to Alex Cora. I think Alex Cora, his only Absolutely. mistake in the entire series was maybe r stretching too thin his bullpen in the third game, which that went till 4 in the morning. <laughs> and Nathan Eovaldi pitched probably one of the games of his life and still lost. Right. Which... Right. which well, uh, on yeah. Arguably, I think he made a great decision leaving Eovaldi out there because he, he gave oh, a good rest. I, I, I agree that leaving Eovaldi out there was the better decision, but in, in the grand scheme of things, obviously it was, it was a five-game series. Yeah. Boston won 4-1. Uh, but that was really the only thing that anybody could have looked to right. and said, well, maybe I'll know about that. Yeah. The, way, the way the pitching was managed in Game 3, honestly, that's, why, that's one of the reasons why we were talking about this earlier, but um, that's one of the reasons why I really do think that if, if Game 4... If Game Four goes the way of the Dodgers, this is a completely different series. Uh, baseball is uh, the game of a billion different what ifs in the same game, but um, you know that that he uh, Cora burns through his 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 bullpen um, through a, a game that is basically a doubleheader wrapped into one game, yeah. and um, it's he completely like uh, the Dodgers on the top uh, in the fifth and Game Four looks fine. Um, then he, then, um, in the sixth or the seventh, I don't exactly I believe it was, it was the seventh. It was the seventh then, yeah, yeah sorry. Um, 
Uh, Rich Hill. Rich yeah, Hill he, was pulled, he pulled out. Yeah, he got pulled out. Uh, the the closers are put in, and long story short, we're we're down three to one going into game five. What? Uh, how like it's just it's, it's just it, it's it's it's, it's so the typical Dodger thing where. It's all so questionable. The that typical Dodger thing. No, I mean, I, I, okay, I shouldn't say that because last year, the issue was that the Dodgers couldn't hit. Well, and, I think and that and was, this is still that was the, the issue case, this but year. Now, but now, but this year, the main issue is that the bullpen couldn't hold back the Red Sox bats, and that it, it, that is ultimately what cost them the game. Kenley yeah. Jansen gave up two leads in two different games. That in in very late innings that could have ended a lot. So in game three, game three, game three, the Dodgers are up one to nothing going into the eighth inning. Kenley Jansen gives up the tying home run that would then <laughs> extend this game seven hours. Yeah, I know, I know, and and that's definitely a part of it. But I see this and I say, well, I I, th- I really think it was more of a pitching or excuse me, a hitting issue. I mean, I constantly watched big hitters like Manny Machado mm-hmm. and Yasiel Puig come up and swing for the fences with no game sense at all of what they actually needed. Right. Manny Machado played absolutely terrible. I would agree. The most, com- the most per- consistent player on the Dodgers lineup was arguably Justin Turner. Right. Oh, he, he's, o- he's always been the Dodgers' clutch, uh, clutch hitter. Clutch player, to be honest. Uh, defensively, I'm not sure what his war statistic is, but he's, he's just been the most consistent. A- at the end of the day... The Dodgers were not going to make it past uh, the Red Sox. I don't think it, no matter what National League team you threw at the Red Sox, nobody was getting past them. But I think I think this is an interesting trend as we're wrapping up here. It's an interesting trend how both these teams were built with power, but I think the Red Sox were built a little bit more with contact hitters, and that's what ended up right. winning this series for them. The Dodgers really went all out with this kind of rising trend. Like the, You see it with uh, what's going on with the Yankees in New York. They're building uh, a team full of just home run hitters, and that ends up costing you when you just can't Camp, launch the long ball. And when you're facing a lineup of Chris Sale, Nathan Eovaldi, uh, Rick Porcello, I mean, that's not hard David to... Or that's not had a legendary uh, yep. postseason. Yeah. I eat my words live on air. Out of hand it down. Yeah. So that just about does it for Tom Oct here on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. Chris, Olivia, Sebastian, and myself, I'm your host, Nick Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. New release is up next. We will see you next week.